seated. Good evening to you. Good to be back with you after missing a week. And um, uh, for those of you who are praying, thank you so much related to the conference out in, Friday, uh, in uh, Florida. Very warm out in Florida right now, by the way. And um, the theme of the conference was uh, having been with Jesus. And, and uh, I felt very much like the conference was exactly that for all of us that were there. It was a sweet time uh, with Him. And so, very precious. And thank you for praying uh, for, that, uh, for that time. As we begin the, uh, the gospel according to Mark, I want to uh, introduce uh, it a little bit, not to be tedious uh, or to kind of over-explain the obvious that Mark is, is the author uh, of this uh, gospel. Uh, by the way, we'll, we'll pause a moment here. If you're here this evening without a Bible, go ahead, gentlemen, come on up. You'll be fairly lost without a Bible this evening. And uh, just raise your hand, and these men will put one in your hands. If you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you this evening. But as we would look at uh, who the author, the human instrument that God used to write the gospel, according to Mark, and a little bit about the uniqueness of the gospel, I think it helps us to really fully be able to appreciate it in terms of absorbing it into our own Christian life. The author is, of course, Mark, but you may wonder who in the world is Mark. And uh, Mark is a, a young, a, a, was a young man in, in, uh, raised in the city of Jerusalem. We're told in Acts chapter 12 that his mother's name was Mary. She owned a house in the city of Jerusalem where the early Christians used to meet uh, in the home is, is a meeting place. And so early in, in the history of the church there in Jerusalem, uh, this was a place, a, a hopping place for uh, those, that great chapter of the early church. And Mark, uh, because his mother's house was given over to it, was in the middle of all of it. It's believed that Mark was uh, initially... Uh, became a Christian under the influence of the Apostle Peter uh, because uh, Peter writes uh, in his first uh, letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, he uh, writes, She who is in Babylon uh, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark my son. And so it appears that in that uh, early season in the church, Mark came to faith under the influence of uh, the apostle uh, Peter. This is the same Mark who was the nephew of Barnabas, who accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, and then abandoned them very early on for some reason, perhaps uh, out of fear, uh, because of the, the persecution and the danger that their lives were in on that early missionary journey. And, uh, and he returned home. And then when Paul and Barnabas uh, were, were planned to begin their second missionary journey, uh, Paul and Barnabas disagreed very sharply related to Mark, whether he should attend them on the missionary journey. Mark was Barnabas's nephew. He was uh, very strongly of the mind that Mark should be given a second chance and accompany them on the missionary journey. And and uh, uh, Paul was uh, unwilling, absolutely unwilling to allow it. And the result was that Paul then broke off from Barnabas 
and uh, went ahead on his missionary journeys for the rest of his, those missionaries' journeys with a man by the name of Silas. Barnabas went off uh, to minister then uh, with Mark. It, it, does, uh, it is widely held that Mark became uh, a disciple of, not only led to the Lord by Peter, but somehow in his history of, of now accompanying Barnabas, that somehow later, a little bit later in the history, that he came uh, under kind of the direct tutelage or discipleship of the apostle uh, Peter and uh, attended to Peter and was side by side with him until Peter's uh, martyrdom. He listened to all of Peter's sermons that he would preach as he would travel and so forth, penned them. And uh, thus this gospel, the gospel according to Mark, is considered to be kind of Peter's gospel. It is something that is probably very close to the gospel Peter would have been written if he had, would have written if he had written uh, a gospel. Mark's uh, failure, before we leave him now, uh, his failure on uh, the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, it was, even though he failed there, ultimately he did reconcile with the Apostle Paul. Paul laid in his life and his final epistle that he wrote, uh, he declared his desire to have Mark come and be with him because uh, he was a uh, uh, useful to him for the ministry. And one of the things that we see with Mark, when you read the book of Acts and you see how massively he stumbled uh, so early in his public ministry, failing. I mean, if you're going to, if you, if you fall and, and, and stumble in a race and, it, and it's far away from Paul and Barnabas and Paul's missionary journeys, probably nobody's going to find out. But when you do it in that kind of a context and it gets put in the book and, and now everybody knows. And, uh, and I've, I have such respect for Mark, for not looking at that and, and having stumbled early in his ministry, then saying, listen, I can never dig myself out from under uh, the stigma that I'm under as a result of, of bailing out on that first missionary journey. I'm going to find some obscure place to uh, serve the Lord where nobody will ever know anything about me. But he didn't do that. He didn't run and hide from his calling and from what God had gifted him to do. He, he, he messed up, but he dusted himself off. He learned from the mistake, and then he moved on. And there's a lot to respect that. And certainly the Holy Spirit, God was very pleased with it. God doesn't per expect perfection from our lives. He doesn't even uh, expect perfection from us in our service to the Lord. We all make mistakes. And and that's just the way that it is. And and but uh, and how God here will not, if we're if we're willing, God will never allow a failure in our life in in public ministry and Christian ministry when we flub it. And uh, He will never allow that to have the final say. That that's the thing that's attached to our lives. That's what everybody remembers about us for the rest of our lives. He always then calls us into. Uh, something else and puts an anointing upon our life and a grace and, a, and a, a blessing upon our life that that then becomes something in the rearview mirror and we become known for something far greater and Mark did that. It's one of the reasons I have tremendous respect for David in the Old Testament and uh, I hate the fact that he um, committed adultery with Bathsheba. Um, I hate the fact that he arranged for um, the assassination, basically the murder 
of uh, her husband, Uriah the Hittite, and how far-reaching the damage was from all of that. There's no minimizing that in any way. But when I look at David, God still had a call upon his life. God still wanted David to finish his ministry as the king. And I think it would be so easy for David to have, he was a very, very wealthy man, just to bought a, a Greek island somewhere and gone off and spent the rest of his life in obscurity rather than uh, knowing what he had done, everybody knowing what he had done in continuing as king. And yet he continued uh, to do that because God had called him to do that. If you have failed in Christian service and you've messed up, we all want to hide after we've done that. We, never, we, we all want to get off of uh, the tightrope and, uh, and, and move, move away from it and say, I'll just live a nice anonymous life free of serving the Lord. We don't get to do that. And, uh, and if that's a, something that's happened to you and you're tempted to do that, Mark here, and how much uh, uh, God blessed Mark's life, not only in the writing of the gospel, but how much he even came to mean uh, to the Apostle Paul. Uh, that will be true of your life uh, as well. When we look at these four gospels, still introducing for a little bit here, uh, each of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they provide us with a historical account of the birth and of the life and the ministry and the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus during his uh, 33 and a half years of, of, of his life. Each one of the Gospels gives us a little bit of a different angle upon uh, the life and the, the ministry of Jesus. They emphasize a different side of him. And as you might remember when we studied Matthew's Gospel, uh, that Matthew is written primarily with a Jewish audience in mind. And that's why Matthew is filled with uh, references to the Old Testament, and, uh, and he's constantly quoting Old Testament scriptures and, and proving the case that Jesus was in, is indeed uh, the Jewish Messiah. And, and so you have uh, Matthew wanting Jews to come to a, a faith in Jesus as the Messiah, not based upon the fact that he was saying it, but on the basis of, of the surest thing in, in the whole world, and that is the Scriptures themselves, the Old Testament uh, prophecies. Mark, and the emphasis of Mark as he examines the life and the ministry of Jesus is he emphasizes Jesus as the servant. And that's why, uh, compared to go Matthew's gospel, there's a lot less teaching in Mark's gospel. If you just, if you just take it in, in, in your, at your leisure, don't do it right now, uh, but you just thumb through it in comparison to Matthew's gospel, you'll notice that there's a lot less read in that in Mark's gospel, a lot less of the teaching of Jesus in the gospel. Uh, there's no Sermon on the Mount that's recorded there. There's no Olivet Discourse that's recorded uh, there. And, and that's because the emphasis of Mark is more on what Jesus did, his doing, than on his teaching. And uh, very, very long in its description, Mark's gospel is on the miracles and uh, short on the parables as well. It's a perfect gospel for uh, people who like action and maybe a little bit ADD uh, as well. He's, he's, not a, uh, he's not a detail guy. He's not an adjective guy. He's not an adverb guy. Uh, he, just, he just gets right to the 
the point and he keeps uh, the narrative uh, going. And uh, I think of when I think about, you know, something where uh, you get somebody that's got like they move like this in, in life and in their thinking and in their doing and so forth. Get, get to the point. Get me to the action of it. And Mark being that way. There's a few Calvary pastors that I know that are like that. And I could name some of them to you, but I, I, won't, uh, I won't do that. And uh, they get all bogged down in, in, in certain kinds of things and jump over. I'll never forget one of them. You would know his name if I told you. By the way, did I tell you you'd know his name if I, if I told you? Um, but I was listening to him in the very early years of, of pastoring, and I was attempting to teach the book of Romans, a uh, book of uh, Hebrews at the time, which is not an easy book. And so I was listening to this pastor go through uh, the book of Hebrews, and um, he's making his way kind of through, and he, uh, as he's doing so, he's, he's taking, you know, a nice size section of the book all the way uh, through, and uh, spent a fair amount of time on chapters one through six, and then one Sunday he showed up at church, and uh, he finished chapters uh, seven through 13 in one's 40-minute sermon. So I think he just kind of lost interest in the book and just wrapped it up and headed on to whatever he wanted to do next. Coincidentally, because it is kind of an action uh, uh, gospel, uh, it's the shortest of the, the four gospels. The, the early church fathers, almost without exception, understand the book of Mark to have been written by Mark in the city of Rome with, Ro with Rome, Romans in mind, with Gentiles uh, in mind in terms of uh, the audience. And, and because of that, uh, Mark's gospel represents a, a tremendous uh, introduction to Jesus for someone who's coming from an absolutely pagan background uh, or unchurched background. Luke, as we'll get to some other time, emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, the gospel of Luke, and then John emphasizes the deity of Christ. None of the gospels are, contrary, are contradictory to one another. They are complementary. Um, sometimes you'll hear people, they'll complain about the gospels uh, in, their, in an attack upon uh, the authenticity of the Bible and so forth. And they'll say, well, there's certain things that are recorded in all four of the Gospels, uh, and then there's certain things that are recorded in maybe two but not in the other two, or maybe just in one but in not the other three, and they try to discredit um, the biblical account of, of Jesus' life because it's only represented in one of the four Gospels rather than in all four of them. And this is, a, this, this is the kind of argument of someone who doesn't even have a, a cursory understanding of the Gospels or the realization that each one of these Gospels emphasizes Jesus in a certain way. And so they omit sections of his ministry and teaching that doesn't have something that advances him, for instance, with Mark's gospel, as the, the, the servant uh, of the Lord. And so it takes all four of the gospels put together for us to uh, have all that the Holy Spirit wants to know uh, about him. They are complementary. Um, the uh, verse one, uh, you know, we get to it. The beginning, uh, uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here you have the purpose. Mark is giving us the purpose of this gospel stated here. It's in order to provide a record of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In other words, it's, it is intended to provide us with a record of His birth, His life, His teaching, His ministry 
ministry, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And all of that put together constitutes uh, the gospel. And when he talks about the gospel here, uh, the gospel, the word gospel means good news. It means great news. And he's talking about the great news of salvation that is found in a person. It is not found in a formula. It is not found in an institution. The gospel is found in a very uniquely qualified Savior who has provided it to uh, the world. You remove Jesus Christ and his life and his ministry from human history, and we have no good news left in the entire world in the face of sin or in the face of the need for forgiveness uh, of sins or heaven or hope or relationship with God or discovering the meaning and the purpose of life. None of those things. We have no uh, understanding of those things, no good news in any of those areas apart from him. Now, when Mark writes here, as so many of the writers in the New Testament do, he includes early on here a description of Jesus. And the description is an interesting one. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He now describes this Jesus to, and what uniquely qualifies him to provide a gospel to mankind, to provide forgiveness and, 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 uh, and salvation. And, and so he uh, refers to Jesus. First of all, Jesus, that's his name. Jesus' name means Jehovah is shall, salvation. The long uh, name for God in the Old Testament is uh, Jehovah Shua. That gets uh, contracted to Jehoshua. And then that gets contracted in the Hebrew. That gets contracted further to Jesus. Uh, Jesus' name uh, describes what he came into the world to do. And that is, he was born to the world as God in order to provide us with salvation. Uh, Mark further describes him uh, as the Christ, and this Christ is not his last name. It refers to his mission. Christ means uh, the anointed one. It's a New Testament term or a Greek term for Messiah. And Mark is telling us that uh, he, Christ, Jesus is the Christ, He is the Messiah, uh, the Savior that was promised in the Old Testament. And then Mark further describes Jesus, the provider of this gospel, as the Son of God. And he declares Jesus' deity here, that He is uh, the Son of God and God the Son. Uh, the reason that this is significant is it is Jesus' deity that uniquely qualifies him to provide the forgiveness of sins. And I make mention of it every so often, but I will again here as well. Very often, and it's a significant group of people who really balk at the claims of the Bible concerning Jesus that he is the Son of God, that he is God the Son, that he is divine. And so they, they say, isn't it enough to believe that he was a great man or a great prophet or a great miracle worker or a great teacher? And no, it isn't good enough to believe those things uh, merely uh, about him. 
And, and the reason that it isn't if, is because if that is all that He was, if He was not also divine, uh, then our sin problem would remain unresolved because one who is merely a great teacher or a good person or a great example isn't qualified to provide mankind with the forgiveness of sins. It is because Jesus is divine that He is also sinless. And it is the sinlessness of Jesus uh, that qualifies Him to be our Savior. His sinlessness is essential for our salvation because a sinner cannot be the Savior of sinners. He would need a Savior for Himself. And it is because Jesus is divine that He is also sinless and and qualifies Him to be our uh, Savior, to be the Lamb uh, without spot and without blemish, as Peter describes Him in his first epistle. You take away His deity, and and you might as well just crumple up the remainder of uh, the gospel according to Mark and make paper airplanes out of them and fly them around the room. The reason there's a gospel attached to Jesus is because He is, as He's described here, the very Son of God. It is, a, it is remarkable to me, and, and I'm not a remarkable person, uh, but when I first got saved, and it, and it marks my life to this day, is uh, I have never f- thought so highly of myself or my opinions, or my ideas, or my intellect, that I could think to turn to the Bible or to the Gospels and think that I can improve upon the Jesus that is described there, or that anything that I would come to believe about Him that was contrary to what's revealed here in the Gospels, it would in any way be an improvement upon Him. It is not wise to tinker in any way with, with what Jesus is declared to be and who He actually was, because otherwise we mar Him in ways uh, that would disqualify Him entirely to provide us with the gospel and to provide us with salvation, for example. He is perfect exactly as He is. Now, we're introduced very early on here uh, to the ministry of John the Baptist, and uh, his mission is described here as it is written in the prophets, and Mark uh, quotes a, a passage concerning uh, a forerunner who was to come to prepare the way before the, Messiah, uh, before the Messiah came into the world, a prophecy given by Isaiah in that vein. And Isaiah wrote, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, speaking of the Messiah. God said, I'm going to send a messenger uh, bef- uh, into the world before the Messiah comes to prepare the world for His uh, uh, appearing his revelation, and he will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his ways. And John the Baptist was sent as a forerunner of Messiah in order to prepare people's hearts for the coming of Jesus as Messiah. In ancient times, when a king would go from uh, from one province of his kingdom to another province of his kingdom, uh, wherever he was traveling to, it was, great improvements would be made upon the infrastructure of those provinces. They would fix the roads, they, anything that was too 
steep of a road, they would level out to make uh, flat if it was too deep, deep of dips in the roads and so forth. They would level them out. Anything to make things smooth for the arrival of, uh, of the Messiah. And included in this preparation for the coming of a king in the ancient world was not just a physical preparation of the land, but a herald would always be sent out ahead of time to announce to the people that the king is coming. Now be ready for him when he comes. And for Jesus, that herald was John the Baptist, sent to prepare the world spiritually for the coming of the king. And somehow, John the Baptist, it's not given to us here. John the Baptist, remember, was a cousin of Jesus. He's six months older than Jesus. But somehow he knows, we don't know why, but he knows that Jesus is about to begin his public ministry at the age of 30. And so he he's going to leave the obscurity of his life in the city of Nazareth. He's going to begin his public ministry. And so John the Baptist now begins to call upon the nation to prepare for the coming of Messiah. What was true concerning ancient roads in those days, preparing them for the coming of Messiah, John the Baptist essentially did that for the preparing of people's hearts for the coming of the Messiah. Marcus is very careful here in in quoting Isaiah to let all of us know that he was his ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, was the fulfillment of the, the, uh, for, the forerunner, the ministry of the forerunner prophesied in the Old Testament. His message is, is an interesting one as, as it's described here, and actually his entire ministry. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of uh, sins. And so uh, he, and, and then, all, uh, so he came preaching. He was preaching in the Judean uh, wilderness. This is an area between Jerusalem and uh, the area of the Dead Sea. It's a very dry, very arid kind of area in that part of, of Israel, probably down in the area of uh, modern-day Jericho and ancient Jericho as well, where the, the Jordan River kind of feeds then formally at that point into the Dead Sea. Very kind of rough, uh, tough uh, area that he, he is ministering in. He called on people to uh, repent. He, he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. He called on people directly to repent. And the word repent in the New Testament, it means to have a change of mind about the direction that I'm going in life, uh, about how I'm living my life, the priorities of my life. It is to have a change of, of mind that then produces a change of direction within my life. And so he, he calls on them to change their direction in life. And he's ministering for the most part to Jews, not so much to uh, Romans, uh, John the Baptist did. And so he, he called on them as a part of his ministry. He called on, on anyone that would listen to him, but primarily Jews, that not only would they acknowledge their sin, uh, not only would they confess their sin, but he called on them to repent of their uh, sins. And then he water baptized those, uh, verse 5, who he, uh, who he who heeded his call uh, to repent. And all of the land of Judea 
and those from Jerusalem went out to him, and they were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, river uh, confessing their sins. And so this baptism that he gave, it's called there a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. This baptism uh, did, did not represent what our water baptism as, as Christians uh, represents, what we do after salvation. But John baptized, and when he called on people to be water baptized, it was a physical demonstration uh, of a person's commitment now. I'm, going, I'm committing to turn from my sin and now to wait expectantly for the coming of Messiah. That's what this water baptism represented under John. And, and, expla- and it explains why John, again, Jesus' cousin, came to be called John the Baptist. He wasn't the start of the Baptist denomination. John the Baptist is called John the Baptist because baptism was such a significant part of his ministry. Uh, I, I like the name uh, just because of the confusion related to him. Uh, I think it's accurate to call him John the Baptizer because uh, he baptized people, and that might be even a little bit more accurate, but it's a lost cause to try and uh, get his uh, description of him changed at this particular uh, point in time. Now, there's a little bit of a description, uh, as we're told there, uh, you know, the, in verse 4 again, he's, this ministry, all this is going on at the Jordan River out in that, uh, that wilderness, very, very difficult, uh, nothing about the environment that was enticing. He wasn't calling on the citizens of Jerusalem, the Jews of Jerusalem and Judea to come uh, to Carmel. He wasn't calling on them to come to Santa Barbara. He was calling them to come uh, to Delhi uh, or some, some place, you know, that you, you wouldn't go there for any other reason uh, than if you were serious with God. And, and, uh, and, and where he was doing his baptism there in, in the wilderness. Apologies to those of you from Delhi, by the way. But uh, where he was doing his baptism was within walking distance of Jerusalem, about 20 miles out of Jerusalem. Uh, the people who were coming, as we're told there, in verse 5, they came from all over the area of Judea. These people are making a 20 to 30 mile journey now in order to come and listen to John and, and, and to heed his message and then be water baptized uh, by him. Now, uh, the, uh, the, the response of, of uh, before we get to the response, let's, let's move down a little bit and talk a little bit about John himself in verse 6. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair. That sounds itchy to me. Uh, and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and uh, wild uh, honey. So, kind of personal insights. His uh, apparel was very, very simple, very rugged, kind of like Elijah. His diet was a very, very simple diet, locusts and honey. Locusts were the diet of uh, a protein source for poor people in those days. It was okay in the law of Moses to eat locusts, so if you're eating them, uh, feel free to do that. You're not violating the law of Moses in any way. Not that we're concerned about that uh, at, the, at that point. I think the mention of honey I'm just assuming that locusts are a little hard to get down, and you need uh, some sweets to, to do it. And so the honey seemed to do the trick. So a little bit of protein, a little bit of carbohydrate. This is a very, uh, very uh, natural kind of uh, uh, man and uh, living very close to nature. 
It is interesting when, you, when we read about him in terms of his diet, in terms of his apparel. I think it does have something to speak to us as Christians uh, today. He, he lived a life, and, and every part of his life was consistent with his, his message, that it was a time to uh, turn to God rather than being consumed by sin or all of the pleasures and the cares uh, of this life. And, you know, we live in a country where we have… Uh, dis- for the most part, we have disposable income, even if we don't think that we, we have disposable income. And of course, the American dream and everything is, you know, to get the house and then a bigger house and so forth and a boat and a car and a nicer car and all of this. And then, you know, once you get those things or if those things are out of reach, then we reach to what we can reach out to. And that is to have uh, the nicest wardrobe that anybody uh, has in the school or in the workplace or in the neighborhood or, or whatever it might be. And then uh, if that isn't focus enough, now in, in my adult life, now food has become a very big deal, foodies and so forth. And I'm not going to put any of that down. Um, I think it's it, it, nothing wrong with enjoying a meal, nothing wrong with having nice clothes and, and, uh, and, and so forth. But I, I, do, I do want to protest um, uh, to any Christian um, who does not have time uh, for a devotional life with God, or does not have time uh, to uh, discover from God their place of service in the world and in the body of Christ, and does not have time to then serve God within that calling, and, and yet their life, they somehow manage to find plenty of time uh, every single day to give themselves to fashion, give themselves to makeup and clothing, and give themselves uh, to be consumed about uh, what special meals they're going to eat in a given week and so forth. I think that's something where a Christian ought to pull back and say, uh, I think I've got sucked into something uh, beyond where I ought to be as a Christian. It isn't legalism. I'm not talking about legalism. You have freedom to do whatever you want. But the fact of the matter is, is that like John the baptizer, uh, I'm I'm making a case for that, by the way, here. Uh, But like John the Baptist, every single person who serves the Lord and in, in every area that serves the Lord, in every area of this church, children's ministry, anywhere you want to look, every single one of them makes time in order to do that by saying no to something else in life that they could be giving themselves to as fully as everybody else is. I'm just saying that it's when a person is not serving the Lord and does not know what God has called them to do and thinks that they're too busy uh, to do these things, to to do that, and yet finds time for this, I think it's time to really, uh, you know, rethink those things and how much time is being invested in appearance and and in in diet. And he preached, uh, and so this was what he, uh, his appearance and so forth. And then I want to come back to verse 5 here a little bit. And, and here you got, have this guy, um, uh, he, he's nothing to look at. I mean, as, as a preacher, uh, there's nothing appealing about him. Nothing appealing about him as an individual. Uh, nothing striking about what he is physically. There's nothing striking about his message that he declares. It's a simple one. 
It's a call on people to repent as necessary in order for their hearts to be ready for the coming of the promised Messiah of the Jews and the Savior of the world. So his message is, is, is just as simple as simple can be. And he as a person is as simple and as simple as can be. The environment in which he is preaching and ministering is as simple as simple can be. It is out in the wilderness. And yet he preaches this gospel of repentance. And the people come out to him in such numbers from the city of Jerusalem that we're told in Matthew's gospel that it became a threat to the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. So much so that they left their religious institutions to come out into the wilderness to find out who is this person that's having an impact upon people for God in a way that we never have, that we dream about, but isn't a reality in, in our ministries. And they came out to, to see him. And I think that John the Baptist has a great deal to speak to us today in terms of, of Christian service and in terms of, of serving the Lord. I think that I, I don't like what's happening right now, and I don't want to be like a, a, a grouch, just a cranky guy. But one of the things that I don't like that I'm seeing right now in, in Western Christianity, American Christianity, is the fact that church is becoming an event. It's becoming an event. And it's got to be light, cameras, action, and, and more action and more action and, and all the creation of an environment to get people to sense God and to feel God and, and, and all of this, this kind of thing to, to produce some kind of an emotional response in people. I'm not saying that God can't bless that. I think it just depends upon people's hearts in terms of what's behind all of this and it can be pure or can be wrong. But I get concerned today that was what was said of prayer meetings 40 years ago is now almost ready to be said of the average uh, church service. And what used to be said of prayer meetings in the old days was you can hardly get people to come out to a meeting in which God is the only attraction. And now I wonder about church services today whether you can get people to come out to a meeting now where God is the only attraction, where the message is simple, where the messenger is a simple human being, but he declares something from God that God is pleased to anoint and give life to in people's hearts. And I think that this other thing that's going on, I can't change the world. I don't want to change the world. I don't want to be in control of anything. But I want you to give consideration to what's happening and to look and and to realize as as it's all so much is becoming the model of lights, camera, action, what concerns me is that this is becoming normative, that this is fashioning the expectation of Christians concerning church. 
and how far away it looks from what I see in a John the Baptist or even in the life of Jesus or even in the early church. Nothing wrong with excellence in terms of a worship team. Nothing wrong with excellence in terms of, of sermons and so forth. Nothing wrong with a comfortable environment. But when this becomes the things where people say, this is why I go there for church, or, or it has to be a big deal in order, where's the latest big deal happening, and that's what it takes for me to go to church, or, to, or is uh, primary in the church that I choose uh, to attend, I think it's a great mistake. And I think with, with a waning away uh, uh, to an ever-increasing degree, away from the teaching of the Word of God by and large in the way that we're doing, however slowly we're doing it tonight, and that is expositionally teaching through a book and teaching through the Bible, uh, is that it gets harder and harder for even Christian people to understand the difference between a soulish experience, something that's purely emotional and carnal, and what is truly a spiritual experience. And you don't need all of these other things to have a truly spiritual experience. John the Baptist, his ministry was effective because he declared what God called him to declare, and then there was the witness of the Holy Spirit upon the message in people's heart. This was a God thing. This was a Holy Spirit thing. And it was happening out in the Wilderness. I mean, they had all of the buildings, they had all of the gold, they had all of the smoke machines in Jerusalem, and they couldn't figure out why. Who would go out there and listen to that from a guy like that? And it was because God was upon John's life and upon the message that he was, he was declaring. And there's some, it's, it's a funny thing, too, when you look at the, the different models of, uh, for church, and there's a lot of different models for how to run a church and, and so forth, and there's a new one every six months if you want to uh, keep up with, uh, with all of it. But when I look at John the Baptist in this scene, you've got to walk 20 miles minimum, 30 miles uh, probably, uh, to get to the church service. Uh, there are, aren't good facilities there, uh, no sound system. Uh, it's pretty arid and pretty dry. It's not a beautiful walk getting there. And then you've got John the Baptist here, and he's calling upon everyone to repent. Why in the world would they come except the, the people of Jerusalem realized in their heart, we are not ready for the coming of Messiah. We need to repent and, and the Holy Spirit, again, bearing witness to that message in their heart. I think it is a great mistake, and, and I want to not only, I'm not speaking to myself, but to plant the seed within your heart, own heart. This idea that's been going on for 30-plus years in the body of Christ, and that is that the church has begun to become like the world in order to attract the world. There's nothing uh, worldly about the ministry of John the Baptist at all or of Jesus' ministry. But when a person wakes up one morning and they're sick of their sin, I'm sick of the life that I'm living. I'm sick of the sins that I'm engaged in. I'm sick of this half foot, one foot in the world, and one foot in the kingdom of God. I'm sick of this, uh, 
this kind of existence that I have. Or they wake up and they say, I've ex- experienced all of the, everything that can be experienced in life in terms of sex, drugs, rock and roll, education, titles, whatever it might be. And, and now I, I, I'm done with it. I want to know that there's another kingdom. There's another place that I can go and experience something entirely different. And when a person, when God puts his finger on a person's life related to sin within, within their life, they are not going to be afraid when they walk into a church or they hear from someone who's speaking to them, witnessing on a corner, that they need to repent of their sin and now make them, their, their heart right with God. It will be good news to them that that's a possibility. Repentance is not a dirty word. It is the great overlooked word related to the gospel, as we'll see when we get to... It's the first word that Jesus spoke in his public ministry, was the word repent. But when people are sick of their sins, the word repentance is never a dirty word. It is a privilege. You mean there? I have the ability to turn from what I thought was the only option in life to now turn to God. I know that repentance and the message of repentance was a, was a, a, a not anything dirty to me by the time I got done with uh, pursuing my own life and and being the Lord of my own life. But you, you look at the response to the simplicity of the things that are described here. Nothing to appeal to it, uh, uh, the, the flesh at all. Uh, it was all about God. And those people that were about God were eager to hear uh, these things. Wherever the Holy Spirit is working in a person's life, they will not be afraid of, of the, the severity, the, the sanctified severity of the message of of, of John the Baptist here, or the message of a call to repent in terms of, of becoming a Christian. Now, you notice that part of his message he declared to the people in terms of being a forerunner for Jesus, he preached saying, there comes one after me, uh, the Messiah, who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. In other words, he says, I'm not the star of this show. I'm not the star of of this message. I'm not the star of this ministry. I'm not the star. I'm not the person you're looking for. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the person you travel 20 or 30 miles to come and see. Uh, Who you're looking for is the Messiah who uh, is is coming. And and he explained himself here as as being the the guy is so much greater than me, John the Baptist said, uh, Jesus, that I'm not even worthy to stoop down and take his sandals off of his feet. And he went on further to say, I indeed baptized you with water, but he, when the Messiah, when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy uh, Spirit. And so he explained this significant difference between John did his ministry and the ministry of the Messiah who would come. Uh, John baptized with water under repentance. It symbolized a desire to live a godly life, a willingness to do that, but it provided no power uh, to live the life that they, they longed for. The baptism with the Holy Spirit 
that Jesus provides, provides us with the power to live the godly life that we want uh, to live. And there's no upper limit on it. We can, it, 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 it will, it, it's the power to live a godly life, as godly a life as we want to live. And in any environment within, in the entire world, as Jesus describes it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Tremendous humility, refreshing humility in the life of John the Baptist here. And then he, uh, Mark makes his way rapidly uh, to, I'm not uh, rapid, but John, uh, Mark is, and in verse 9, he moves on to the baptism uh, of Jesus. And, uh, and he said, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, where he was raised, and was baptized by John uh, in the Jordan. And so Jesus now begins his public ministry. It's a three-and-a-half-year ministry before he ends up being crucified, buried, and rising again. He begins this ministry at 30 years of, of age, and his public ministry began with uh, being water baptized by uh, John the Baptist in the Jordan uh, River. And so Jesus uh, deliberately, very pers- purposefully, comes from uh, the city of Nazareth, and he makes that journey now down into uh, what he, where he knows John is doing this baptism. Jesus comes for the very uh, purpose. You can imagine this great line is formed of people wanting to be baptized by uh, 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 John, and then suddenly John looks up and uh, reaches out to the next person to water baptize him, and it's him. Uh, it's the Messiah. And, uh, and here is Jesus standing there following a 60-mile walk from the north, and he's waiting to be baptized by John the Baptist. We know in Matthew's gospel, Luke, Mark doesn't bring it out, but at this point, uh, John, uh, he protests. He says, I, listen, I need to be baptized by you. I, uh, what am I gonna, supposed to baptize? Uh, you're coming to me for baptism? And Jesus said, permit it to be so now, for it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness and then John water baptized him. And so John was very, very polite, very respectful of Jesus, but he tried to uh, prevent it. In other words, you're holier than me, more committed to God than me. You're more more zealous for God than me. You should be baptizing me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. And uh, Jesus told him, let's do it. And Jesus uh, began, he wanted deliberately to begin his public ministry with uh, this public ministry that would include his death, his burial, and his resurrection in order to provide mankind with a a right standing before God uh, that we so desperately need. And uh, their, their water baptism expressed their hunger for righteousness, for salvation. And uh, his water baptism represented his commitment now to provide the salvation and the forgiveness of sins that people were coming to be water baptized for. And so uh, John obeyed. You notice the supernatural phenomenon that surrounded Jesus' uh, baptism immediately. And this is a favorite word of Mark in his gospel. And immediately coming up uh, from the water, you can picture it in his mind, the spray of the water and so forth. Uh, He, that is Jesus, saw the heavens parting 
and uh, as he's coming up, and, and this is what he, he views as it is, it is water baptism, and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And so here you have, as he begins his public ministry, the witness of the testimony of the Holy Spirit uh, to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit alights upon him, comes upon him. Important to kind of circle in your mind, or literally in the Bible in verse 10, that with this water baptism, Jesus experienced uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit as well, the Holy Spirit uh, descending, and then notice that word, upon him like uh, a dove. Jesus begins his public ministry with the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and, and he receives the baptism with the Holy Spirit to provide him with the power to do everything that was going to lay ahead for him in his public ministry, including his life, his teaching, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so he began, he, if he began his public ministry with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, how much more do we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit for our, to be successful in our public ministry as well, again, as it's described there in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, being baptized with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming uh, upon us. I think it's very important to understand uh, that Jesus did not operate in His public ministry out of His deity. He didn't do it. So when you read the Gospels and you look and you say, well, of course he did that. I could never do that in that environment. Of course he did that. He's God. He never operated in his public ministry, the three and a half years of his public ministry, out of his deity, though he never ceased to be divine. Every minute of that three and a half years of his, his public ministry, but he operated out of his humanity. And he navigated life and the fallenness of this world in performing his his public ministry with the same resources that are available uh, to us as Christians. The leading of God the Father in our life on a daily basis, and then the uh, empowering of the Holy Spirit, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Everything that Jesus did and taught was from the will of the Father. And it was then done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And not an exercise of His will, but in the will of the Father. Concerning His works, Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Concerning His teaching, Jesus declared in John chapter 8, verse 28, He said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. In terms of the place of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' public ministry, the writer of the book of Hebrews puts it this way, for in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 and 14, let me read it to you. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, and then here speaking of Christ, speaking of Jesus, who through the eternal Spirit 
Everything that Jesus did, he did in the power of the Holy Spirit provided to him in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus lived his life in his incarnation, and he met and he overcame uh, temptations as exactly the same way as other men may meet and overcome temptations, in, in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that well, we'll see it in a moment when he, when he gets to the, when he's tempted uh, by uh, the devil here. And so here is this baptism with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming upon him. Again, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus speaking to us as Christians, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. A P, that is the Greek preposition, same one as in, as in Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 10, describing Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. No one can have any hope of, uh, of, of, of the living the power, the Christian life, or to be fruitful in the Christian life apart from the baptism with the Holy Spirit. But the wonderful thing about the, about the baptism with the Holy Spirit is that no Christian needs to be without the baptism of the Holy Spirit because it's received by simply asking for it. God, would you give me the power to be a witness to you in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And the two hardest places to live for Christ in all of the world is at home and on the other side of the world. And here's the power to live a life, live the Christian life as it's described in the Word of God. To live that Christian life, uh, the power uh, to, to live it in any environment we find ourselves uh, in the world, uh, even at home, even at school, in the workplace, wherever we might be or where God has us uh, in the world. Uh, Jesus spoke concerning this receiving of the fullness of the Spirit in Luke chapter 11, verse 13. He said, if you then, uh, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? He will give this experience, this empowering by the Holy Spirit. He will give it. It's there for the asking. I tell you, I remember very, very well in... Uh, as a new Christian. Uh, I was raised for a time in, in church in my youth. And it was in a church that uh, didn't believe a, a lot of things that I later discovered were true related to the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And it was just like you become a Christian and now you kind of just roll up your sleeves and uh, get at uh, obeying all this stuff. And, 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 but a baptism with the Holy Spirit and so forth, there was nothing like this. In, in fact, you received everything that you could ever receive at the moment that you were born again. 
even though when Jesus in Acts chapter 1 speaks to the disciples about being baptized with the Holy Spirit, in John chapter 20, already earlier, he had breathed upon them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And yet a period of time lapses between the time that the Holy Spirit came into their lives and they were born again, and then the receiving of the baptism with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Sometimes it happens all at the same time, but sometimes there's a separation between the two events. And all I know is that when I, uh, later on, when I started to go to the Calvary Chapel in, in Napa, I still had this concept concerning Christianity, and I uh, committed my life to the Lord, and I began to grow in the Word of God. And now I'm trying to live what I'm, uh, I'm seeing in this book in my own strength. And, and, and it's becoming very, very frustrating. There's no joy at all. I'm trying to live the Christian life in my own strength, independent of the Holy Spirit. And then finally I realized what I was uh, missing as someone uh, educated me on it. And I was baptized with the Holy Spirit, as Jesus promised, by simply asking for that baptism. And I received that power into my life. And everything, had, everything changed. Otherwise, the book, even the New Testament, it just becomes a source of great frustration to a Christian where they just look and say, how many people have you talked with through the years? And they'll look and, and you'll say, well, have you ever trusted in Christ? Yeah, you know, I, and, the, and this and this and this and this. And, you know, I tried. And they mean it. They gave it a very, very good go. And the Christian life killed them. Just about killed them. And then they realize, and, the, and the, what's the thought that comes into your mind? Well, I guess it doesn't work for me. I guess it doesn't work for me. It works for them, but it doesn't work for me. This is all for just a certain kind of personality type, but it's not for my personality type. And most often a person hasn't realized that they have not received that fullness of the Holy Spirit upon their life, as Jesus did begin to begin his public ministry, the power to now live this Christian life. I can't tell you, I can't, I can't describe what happened to me. As I moved from the frustration of it, the, 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 just the pure misery of it. Listen, I'm a determined person. I am a type A on the inside. And you, wanna, you want me to dig a ditch for you? You tell me where to start and what direction I'm supposed to go, and I'm going to dig you a ditch. And God wants me to obey what's in this book and is an expression of my love for him and so forth. Hand me the shovel. I'm going to go after it. And I discovered I couldn't do it. And then baptized in the Holy Spirit by just simply asking. It was after a Sunday night or a Wednesday night service. I just went up, as there'll be men and women up in front even after this service this evening, and I said, I need that. I need this in my life. And then received it, and, and the blues became bluer, and the greens became greener in my life. doesn't mean things got easier. We're going to see it doesn't get easier for Jesus. Right out of the chute, he gets tempted by the devil following the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But that's for another week. But if you're trying to live this life, and it's just constant frustration and failure to the point then that you become a hypocrite, you decide the only way to do this is hypocrisy. 
I'll be one thing in spiritual environments, and then I'll be what I really am uh, in non-spiritual environments because I can't pretend all of the time. If you've never been baptized with the Holy Spirit, then be baptized with the Holy Spirit tonight. Nobody can not only serve God without being baptized with the Holy Spirit. We cannot even live the Christian life without the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit comes upon him like a dove, and then the Father's witness to the life of Jesus. Then a voice came from heaven, and this is what he declared concerning Jesus. You are God the Father. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well uh, pleased. And here you have the entirety of the Godhead all present at uh, Jesus' water baptism. You've got uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's a, trouble, it's a troublesome passage for those uh, that believe in the oneness theology, that uh, God will only manifest himself in one person of the Godhead at a time. And so God manifested himself as God the Father in the Old Testament, manifested himself as God the Son uh, during Jesus' 33 and a half years of his life, and then now he manifests himself solely in the Holy Spirit. But it's nothing of the sort. All three persons are identified individually within the event, and, uh, and they're absolutely one. Uh, one. One God, three persons, but all three persons uh, present here. And so the Father testifies to His Son, you are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And He wants the whole world to know these things about Jesus at the very start. Number one, this is my Son. Number two, I love my Son. Number three, I am well pleased in my Son. In other words, to everyone in the world at the time of Jesus and in the world uh, even today, everything that you're going to see Jesus do, everything that you're going to hear him teach has the full approval of the rest of the Godhead, of God the Holy Spirit and uh, God the Father. Pay attention to him because he's going to speak for all of us and he's going to act for all of us. And then with this, Mark leaves the ministry of John the Baptist behind now to focus solely upon the ministry of Jesus, which we will pick up uh, next week, Lord willing. Let's stand together.